Good morning, Las Vegas. I'd like to say I'm opening here all week, but this, I am not. My Netflix is down, and I hadn't planned on having to talk to anybody today, right? You, you hear this disappointment. Twitter, our friend. Outrage, right, to the point where people want to call the police if they can't play a title. And then there's just pure withdrawal, right? You find yourself in a bathtub, shivering, quoting lines from friends. Um, so this is something we deal with occasionally. Uh, and the similarity between these different um, tweets that you see up here, and there's more than a few of these, um, is they're synchronized in terms of their frustration, right? These happen in somewhat similar time. If you go look at our Twitter feed on Netflix, you don't see that all the time. But this was on February of last year on the 3rd, and there were a lot of people that were disappointed. So has anybody here or their team ever taken down the production environment? Show of hands. <laughs> on purpose, keep in mind, anybody on purpose? That's good, that's good, because we don't like to do that, right? So occasionally we take down production, um, and we try to do it in most cases as an accident. So what I'm gonna talk to you about today is how Netflix deals with this in terms of our model. I'm gonna talk a bit about going global, but at the same time, focus on those aspects of our architecture which help us uh, scale. So failure is inevitable, right? We, um, every time you push a piece of code or you make a change to your environment, there's a possibility that it's gonna break something. So when you look at a failure-driven architecture, which is uh, the principle we operate off of, you want to operate in a mode where uh, you never actually fail the same way twice. So you're failing, you have failures over and over, but to achieve your end goal, you need to make sure that you don't have that same failure pattern again and again. That, um, that shows that you're learning from it, right? And, and improving your business, and it actually helps you get to a point where we've reached in terms of being able to scale to a pretty incredible level globally um, by applying these principles I'm gonna talk about today. So, uh, first some introductions. This is not me. I have friends that ride motorcycles and they have all the cool pictures, so I stole one. This is me. Um, I'd like to think that my teams do similar things, just not on motorcycles, so maybe not as dangerous. So I run performance and reliability engineering at Netflix. We're all located in Los Gatos. I have, uh, I have six teams. Um, and we handle things from chaos engineering, we do the core SRE, uh, cloud capacity planning, we have about 100,000, a little over 100,000 instances running in production globally at any um, given time. We optimize the AMI and we do uh, traffic management and I'll talk a lot about that today as well. We also open source various things. So we open source uh, Chaos Monkey, uh, Visceral, a visualization utility I'll show you later, Vector. We have the new stickers, so if you have a chance to stop by the booth, please stop by and pick up the latest uh, Chaos Monkey V2 sticker. We have a piles of them. But I could go into the details of our team and what we do to solve these problems of performance and reliability and help us scale. But what I do is I like to summarize it as when, um, when you go to click play on Netflix, it just works. And that's how I summarize it for the layperson when I run into them and say, it just has to work. I don't give them my home number, but um, they know how to reach me if they, they need to talk to me. So Netflix, uh, people are probably familiar with Netflix. People here use Netflix? Pretty good, uh, excellent. Um, you know, our goal is really to bring movies and TV shows from all over the world to people all over the world, which has a number of dimensions to it. Um, we're pretty unique, well, we aren't unique today, there's other companies doing this, but, you know, in terms of being streaming on demand and subscription-based, we don't have a lot of ads on the site. Probably one of the larger challenges from a content perspective is global and regional licensing. You'd like to think, hey, this piece of content, let's just go buy it, buy it and I can show it everywhere in the world. That's actually not the case, so we invest quite a bit of time in dealing with licensing uh, factors. And then we try to bring content from many different channels, right? Everybody hears the word original all the time. Amazon has originals, we have originals, HBO has originals. But we also go to film festivals and buy independent content, and we look internationally. So we find things for markets, and we're actually producing some originals uh, in various regions, like um, India now. So the goal is to have global ubiquity. Right, the ideal goal is someone can click play anywhere in the world and get content they want to watch. And that's what we strive for. So we started this journey quite a bit of time ago and now we're at about 86 million members or households. We bring in about $2 billion in revenue a quarter. Um, so we, we've grown quite a bit. At night we're about 35% of internet traffic in the US. Um, I will call out, just for clarification, some people believe that we stream our content off Amazon. We don't. That's our control plane. 
which is probably about 15%, you know, 10% of that traffic is up to the control plane for device management, but we have our own uh, purpose-built CDN called uh, OpenConnect. And we do this all with less than 3,000 employees. So we have about 2,500 employees now. When I started, it was probably like 700 about four years ago. So we've been able to grow very well and scale very well. So a lot of the principles I'm going to talk to you about today help us achieve that scale with a relatively small uh, employee population. So device ubiquity, this is obviously a challenge, right? If you walk into Best Buy or some other store and you see the hundreds of devices, applications that stream content don't appear on there magically. So in 2000, when we launched the streaming service, we went on one big platform. Do you might know what it is? Shout it out. We were on the internet, that is correct. <laughs> that, that, that was a benefit for us. We didn't have to pay for that one. Windows, right? So Windows was the big platform. We had the Silverlight player. And that's how we sort of dipped our foot in the water, right? It was a large population of browsers. And then we started marching forward, building relationships with other uh, vendors in the space. So we had Roku, you know, we went to the Mac, we had the Xbox 360, and each of these helped unlock another portion of the customer segment to us. 2009, we got on some bigger TVs and then the Sony, some of the Sony devices came in. I think 2010 was probably the most memorable. That was what we could call year of Apple, right? I think we had Steve Jobs on stage with the phones, with Netflix and, the engineering teams were quite busy up till that point in time trying to get that ready. Uh, we then jumped over to the Android platform, and each of these are different teams in our organization that partner to get this uh, application first class on the platform. The next step was, you know, now that we've tackled these devices, we felt like we had a pretty good relationship. How do we even become more pervasive in someone's mind? How do we make it easier to get into the Netflix experience instead of navigating around, launching apps, bouncing between them? We put the Netflix button on a couple of remotes, and that made it quite easy for people just to click that right away. That worked out pretty well. It probably wasn't as broadly adopted as we thought. And more recently, what we've started to do is this is the, um, this is the Comcast X1 experience. So if you're a Comcast customer and you have Netflix, you can actually browse and watch content inside of the X1 experience. So I think you can use voice commands and stuff. We do partner with a number of other people in what we call the MVPD space, but this is really us becoming ubiquitous. And the end goal is if you're connected to the internet, which we need, and you have a device, most likely you can play Netflix on it. And we feel like we've got that pretty well covered, um, but it still takes some work. So that's how we look at device coverage. So devices is the first part. The second one is how we spread ourselves out geographically. We started in the US, we expanded to the Americas, so we had Canada and LATAM, reached across the ocean, you know, UK, Ireland, Nordics, and we did a slow march. These were very much what we call white glove launches. You had to deal with the marketing, understand the content, a lot of very you know, in-country level relationships. But it's how we spread ourselves out. Um, and we got all the way over last year to Spain, Italy, and Portugal. Another area of ubiquity is languages, subs and dubs. We have a large team that actually um, does subtitles and um, uh, language dubs for our content. I met somebody on a plane from Germany and they said, you know, I like your service but I wish they would get um, more German subtitles because I like to watch in English, right? So we found that a large percentage of the population likes to watch content in a native tongue to get more of the humor. And so we uh, got rid of a lot of our assumptions in that area. So I'll start talking a bit about how we look at architecture and how we, we build that over, built that over time to be more resilient. Anybody ever use Netflix DVD service? Excellent. Um, back in 2008, we had an issue. Um, for people who are Netflix customers, it might have just been a delay or two in delay. For Netflix, it was sort of a, I wouldn't call it a life-changing event, but it made us sit back and take a look at how we were running our business. You know, we lost a data center. Um, it was down, I think, for a day, day and a half while we had to get it back up and running. During that time, content wasn't shipping. Uh, queues were building up. Definitely wasn't great. So uh, this was more before my time at Netflix, but we created a project called DC2. And it was like, let's build redundancy. So we built another data center, and we put it right next to the first one. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess it was better, right? It's, uh, <laughs> um, we, live there we live in that area too, so hopefully nothing catastrophic happens. Um, but we learned a bunch of things going through that process. And one of them was that when we started to build out these data centers, there wasn't a lot of automation and standardization at the time. It was a lot of hard work to buy equipment, rack it, stack it, you know, deal with firmware drivers, get everything talking, and then you're out of capacity, and then you have to order more. 
Um, and it's actually quite slow, right, the provisioning cycle. I have some Netflix engineers here who I think worked through the night a couple times to get equipment set up quickly, but it's slow. And we found ourselves, I, I believe because of the long time to acquire hardware and, and get it on the floor, we started building systems that were more focused on vert vertical scalability than horizontal. So we ended up with large Oracle databases and large web applications that had to be pushed with a bunch of different teams contributing, and they would break quite a bit. So the summary out of this is um, we're not very good at building data centers, uh, and we determined that right away. We could either invest a lot more to build a global presence in data centers, or we could find another solution. And we saw this as undifferentiated heavy lifting. Our specialty is content, you know, playing content on devices, giving good recommendations, and excellent streaming quality. So in 2010, um, we, uh, Adrian Cockcroft, you've probably heard of, he was at our organization at the time. We made the decision to jump into the Amazon cloud um, versus invest more in our data center strategy. So we went into Virginia, um, US East One, and we started building out some new services. We did some Roman writing for a while, and we were very surprised at what this did for us. We suddenly had scaling elasticity. I could push a button, and I could get some servers that would show up in minutes, I think, at the time. which was incredible for us. And the elasticity, because we weren't quite sure how much our business needed, we, we wanted to avoid running out of headroom. The big benefit was it's virtual and programmable. We're good at writing software. We have a bunch of great software engineers. Um, and having the ability to build, uh, like Asgard, our first deployment um, continuous delivery tool on top of that really helped us at the time insulate developers from hardware and let them get the capacity they needed. And the last one was global footprint. So even though in 2010 we were basically in Virginia, uh, we knew that Amazon had plans to spread globally, and that was a much better idea for us than uh, uh, having to build data centers globally. So what I want to talk about next is how we looked at our architectural pillars, right? So moving from a data center, we had a bunch of monoliths. We had one big Java web app, very painful, uh, broke quite a bit. So we looked in four areas, right? Microservices, our database, um, caching wasn't something initially on our mind. It came along later. And then we deal with global. We have to talk about traffic management. So I'm going to go into those domains here today. So first, microservices. Um, this is the Netflix microservice architecture today. This is an open source tool my team created called Visceral that lets you um, visualize the traffic flowing through the system. So these circles represent uh, autoscaling groups, you know, a given set of code, like a microservice. One of those might be a subscriber microservice or something that handles billing. And the dots represent a weighted um, volume of requests flowing through the system. So you can see as you work your way back down. The architecture itself has a couple key components. First, we use Amazon's elastic load balancers on the front door to maintain a ton of connections globally with our devices. But rather than just have those ELBs send traffic directly back to the, um, you know, the microservices, this is before ALBs and NLBs and the new capabilities coming out with different layers of routing, we created an open source project called Zool. And Zool is a, um, a smart proxy that lets you write Groovy scripts and dynamically route requests between various services. So it gave us greater flexibility in how we route our traffic, balance our load, and handle uh, resiliency. We have a service here. Don't worry about what the acronym means. That's actually like the playback content service. So you ask for a license, it gives you a DRM license. This just shows that we've decoupled our functionality. These all used to be running in one big uh, Java web app that would break usually when it would go out. And then API. One thing we noticed as our microservice architecture expanded was having device teams have to understand how to talk to 100 different services was very painful, right? So our engineering team created something called API.next. It was a composable layer that ingests about 700 JAR files a day. We're primarily a Java shop from all of those other services. And we push that service tier um, every day of the week, right? It pushes every day, red, black, rolls traffic, runs a canary. And it abstracts all that away. So if I'm a PlayStation developer, I can say, give me a list of movies. And um, it makes one request, bundles it all up, and gives it back to me. And it allows our engineering teams to innovate much more quickly. We call this our edge. These are the devices um, that are owned by the edge engineering team. And our availability is no better than their availability. Uh, so they have great, ex op excellent operational practices. And then you have the middle tier and platform. And that's where I'm going to talk about things like Cassandra, EVCache all the other services sitting back there. Whoa, that was not good. Steal the surprise. 
Okay, so occasionally things fail, right? We talked about whether it's accidental, ideally not on purpose. Um, but you might have this microservice sitting in the very back of your stack, and it has a problem. Um, let's say this service is in charge of giving you a list of movies that's personalized for you. It suddenly decides that it can't do that for you and the service is not communicating. So if it fails, what you end up having happen is this chain of failures where at the edge, people are not able to play content because of the failure of just one of your microservices. And I think this is one of the concerns people have when considering a microservice architecture because the assumption is you're sort of juggling, right? And if you drop any of those balls, the juggling event is over. So what our edge team did is they created a framework called Hystrix. And Hystrix deals with fallbacks. And you notice how those last two explosions there just disappeared. Uh, it provides fallbacks. So if that service in the very back, which is supposed to give you your list of movies, is suddenly having a problem, we'll present you an unpersonalized row of movies. They're actually fairly personalized. We don't show you really crazy stuff that you wouldn't want to watch. But it gives you the ability to say, this service is not responding. Um, what I'd like you to do is stop talking to that service and instead give the customer this experience. And my chaos team builds a platform. I'm staying too far away. Okay, so we built Chaos Monkey. Um, if people are familiar with Chaos Monkey, it goes around and it shoots stuff. It kills everything from Cassandra nodes to standard services. You set up a schedule, you know, it's, um, it's required for the most part. You can um, choose to opt out, but it's a little bit, there's a discussion there because, especially if you're in the user streaming flow. But there's Chaos Monkey and we have FIT, which is this fault injection test framework. I'm not gonna talk about it today, but we have a chaos automation platform that lets you simulate failures and see if you break devices automatically in the lab. It's really cool. And then I'll talk about that big guy uh, on the bottom there in a minute. But this is running in production all the time. These circuits are tuned. And there have been cases where maybe a service has a problem and we're unaware of it and 10% of our traffic is getting fallbacks for a day or two, um, which is the desired behavior, right? You don't want to, we rarely show up on Twitter in a large volume because we've given someone an unpersonalized request. Um, next is database. Everybody, I'm sure, has a database of some sort. Um, you might have a large RDBMS. You might have some other NoSQL solution in-house that you're looking at. So when we went to the cloud, we saw it as an opportunity when we're forklifting our data to uh, experiment a bit. We decided to use uh, Amazon SimpleDB at the time. It was really uh, enticing for us. It was NoSQL, so it allowed us to get away from our really big sort of RDBMS monoliths we had in the data center. We had some challenges, um, and it was less about SimpleDB and more about the rate of growth of our business and the demand we were putting on the system. And so it wasn't quite at the scale we were achieving over time. There was some throttling involved. Um, and if you look at the scale we were at, at that time we considered it a modest scale for where we wanted to go as a business. So it didn't look like the right choice down the road. We maybe had hundreds of people playing a title a second. Um, we're in thousands now, many thousands. Um, the request per second, tens of thousands. We had tens of billions of records. So this forced us to stand back and say, you know what, let's experiment. Let's see how far we can get, but let's see what the right solution is now. So what we needed was we needed a, uh, you know, a persistent solution that was very scalable, right? We wanted to go global. Um, it was very durable. Uh, we assume that we have chaos monkey killing stuff, so that data better be somewhere. And uh, it's global, right? We want to have the ability to get the data close to the users wherever they are in the globe. So we chose Cassandra. We, had some, we have some committers that work for us. And it was an excellent solution for a number of reasons. Um, it was NoSQL at scale, so it took us beyond some of those limitations of our previous choice. We liked that it was open source. Uh, we found we had a couple committers. We could contribute things actually into the code base that were beneficial for us, whether they were in Cassandra uh, or in associated management utilities. But I would say some of the bigger wins was the multi-region, the ability to actually have it running in multiple regions in an active manner and have multi-directional replication, which wasn't really a dominant feature in a lot of other databases, or it was quite an expensive feature for commercial products. And we looked at the CAP theorem, and we decided that the availability and partition tolerance was really light in, in line with what we needed. We need to have the ability to sort of sever the environment and still have it, it function if we lose maybe an availability zone. And the eventual consistency, um, well, we're not a bank. And if your device is playing in Virginia, most likely if your data is replicating to another region, um, a very short delay uh, is not going to be a huge problem for you. So let me talk about how we deploy Cassandra on the cloud. This was a, a decision we made early on going into the cloud for the purposes of reliability, and I think our data center learnings inform this. We want it to be spread across multiple availability zones. And so we took Cassandra, and we chose three availability zones, and we built all of our tools that way. And we distributed the key space across three availability zones, or data centers within Amazon, um, with enough capacity that if we lost a given um, AZ for some reason, 
uh, we'd, we'd be fine. So the performance and the, uh, the durability plane of this model. So for those not familiar with Cassandra, we have the clients. You know, we have libraries that work people use to write to Cassandra. Uh, SDNX, I think, was the first implementation. So it writes to a given node. The node replicates it to other nodes in the same cluster across the availability zone to maintain the data in a consistent manner um, across the key space. And then the node will act to the coordinator, because the coordinator is handling this writing. And then it gives it back to the client. I think one bullet's out of order here, because the write to the commit logs before. But think about an order that, in many cases, is on the order of 100 milliseconds or less, or in that ballpark. And we have some relatively stringent performance goals that we track to make sure we stay within that range for our Cassandra clusters. Today, we have 281 clusters with about 7,000 nodes globally. Um, so Cassandra was awesome. Right? Suddenly, we had this very scalable solution. We had a team of people that could change the code if we needed to, and it was just the perfect fit at the time. But as we started to scale the architecture, the microservice architecture is very stateless up towards the front. We auto-scale very heavily every day, tens of thousands of instances. So you could have a request come in. That instance might die. Your very next request should be serviced, so we avoid maintaining state on the instances. Um, and as a result, that means there's a lot of lookups involved to service requests that come in. This is where we learned that we needed a caching solution. So what we did is we created EVCache. So as a caching solution, uh, EVCache is based on memcached. We call it ephemeral volatile cache. Uh, it's clustered, so it's for use on Amazon. We actually took an, you know, the standard memcached server and built it to run across multiple availability zones and handle replication. And so we tailored it for our cloud environment. We actually typically don't run it in three AZs. We run it in two. And part of that is there's so much overhead on these systems in terms of a thundering herd that we don't need three copies. And we rarely would lose two availability zones. I don't think that's ever happened. So the architecture of EVCache. You take your standard memcached server. You pop it onto an instance that's running. We have a bunch of other components that run on our AMI at Netflix called the base AMI uh, that handle monitoring that lets you talk to other services. We have an open source offering called Eureka, which is our discovery client. So as these services are launching, in this case, the memcache server, it comes up and it announces to um, Eureka, which we call discovery, hey, I'm here. I'm ready, I'm ready to do some work. And then all the client libraries, all the client applications have to do is take the EVCache client library, suck it into their client jar, and wrap their code around it to actually get data from EVCache. And it's as simple as that. And we have a team internally of just a few people that maintain EVCache and also develop these libraries. And we have some good tech blogs on the topic as well if you're interested. And then the client talks to EVCache server. Um, we also implemented a consistent hashing algorithm, which made it very easy for us to grow the cluster over time without having to do a crazy amount of rebalancing. So um, that allows us to not necessarily have to over-provision for some fuser, uh, you know, future huge crazy load, and we can grow it in a more uh, realistic manner. So here's how the reads work, right? It does show it in three zones. Sometimes you only have it in two. The client will always, in our case with our library, read from the zone that it's within if that um, EV cache server is available. And that eliminates cross-AZ traffic. Um, and also, you know, there's data transfer rates. But in general, the performance is much better if you stay within your data center. If it can't reach within the data center, it will actually reach across and get it from the other um, availability zone. Now, when you write, the client actually handles writing to all caches concurrently. Um, it's, I believe, asynchronous from the request back to the client, but it makes sure that the state's updated in all three locations, and this usually takes on the order of milliseconds. So when you think about the real benefit of EV cache for us is um, Previous companies I had been at had used caching technologies that sat behind their service tier, right? You go to the service tier, the service tier won't find its data, has to reach back to the database, then puts it in the cache, or if it's in the cache, gives it to you from the cache. The model we apply is we actually put the cache in front of the microservice, and that gets us from the 100 milliseconds to the, in many cases, sub-millisecond response time. So EV cache is there. The client will read from the cache. If it's not there, it actually, the client will go back and say, okay, can't find it, I'll go talk to the service. The service will usually go off and talk to the database and get the data required. Again, this is the 100-ish millisecond request. And on the way back out, the, the data goes back to the client very quickly. But on the way back, the service actually updates the cache on behalf of the client. And so if you come to visit the site, um, the cache with your data warms up very quickly, um, which is a great benefit for us. But it's a pattern we think works quite well. 
and allows us to achieve that stateless architecture. We have a lot of EVCache instances uh, running today. Globally, we have tens of thousands. Um, it handles, I think the peak handles about 25 million requests a second and maybe 2 trillion requests a day. Um, and there's this milliseconds of latency per request is what really introduced caching into our lives, and I'm sure a number of you have applied caching for the exact same reason. And we still need Cassandra for the durability and the uh, replicating the larger sets of data. So that's our caching story. So as we're growing, we got into US East 1, we found these patterns, we determined we needed to have fallbacks, we needed a database, we needed cache. Suddenly we're chugging really well, right? Everything's going great in US East 1 for us. There's only one um, downside. As we start piling on more clients and we bring in Canada, we bring in LATAM, it's really great, but we still have a single basket of eggs, right? If that basket's not working or that basket's broken, all those eggs are broken. Um, it's not an ideal situation to be in, but it was part of our, our growth uh, towards our future architecture. So we launched a new uh, set of services in Dublin, right? And this was to target our regional expansion to uh, uh, Europe. And this, the benefit of this is if US East 1 has a problem, whenever I put these explosions up there, this doesn't mean Amazon goes away in that region. Just, I, I don't think I had to qualify that, but um, it's usually related to a push or some other behavior that happens in our environment where we need to evacuate to get away from something that's faulty um, in our architecture. There could be an Amazon failure, but I'm saying most of the time it's us. Uh, so the nice thing here is people can still stream. You might have people on Twitter saying I'm broken and some saying I'm not broken. Uh, the disadvantage is in our case at least, the majority of our customers at this point in time are still in Virginia. And when we have a problem there, we have a problem for the majority of our population. So. This was a nut we needed to crack, and we called it Cloud Islands, right? It's almost like having two data centers that don't replicate any data. So now it's time to start talking about traffic. Um, we have all these magical things called uh, regions, and now we need to route requests across them in a way to take advantage of that. So we use uh, DNS geo mapping. Um, we actually look at where all of the customers are at this point in time. They're allowed to access Netflix and we subdivide them by state and route them to various locations. And then we added US West 2. So since we had already established EU West 1, there were some hurdles we had to overcome around managing state, getting the environments in sync. And for us, the population was so large in the America, we just replicated our footprint from Virginia out to uh, Oregon and synchronized the data. And this allows us to solve that problem for our largest population, which is a failover between um, Virginia to Oregon and vice versa. So this, this uh, added some new challenges to our plates. Um, one of them is data replication. We had chosen Cassandra because of its uh, regional capability or multi-regional capability, but now it was time to put it to the test. And so the way that the previous pattern changes is you write data to uh, someone in your local zone. That coordinator will replicate it to the other members in the key space, and then it will push it cross-regionally to the other um, region to keep it in sync. And that takes about 500 milliseconds. But again, as I mentioned, that delay is acceptable for us. There could be temporary hiccups. Maybe some data doesn't make it. So to overcome that, we put, into, um, we put in place a bi-regional compare. So changes that were applied, we verify the state's consistent um, on a nightly, nightly manner. And it gave us great confidence to continue to grow. This was a great testing ground for getting this multi-regional um, database capability in place. So where our database goes, our cache must follow. Um, so EVCache was designed as our initial Cassandra deployment to primary, well, Cassandra had multi-regional, but EVCache had been designed from the ground up to really be a single region at the time. And we determined that, you know, we can't afford to not have that replicated across the various regions. So we built a model, our first, our first pass at it, whenever you change data in EVCache in your region, we then push that as a message to Amazon's SQS and say there's a change that's been made. And then we wrote a custom service that we called EVCache replication. It was polling that, it would pick up the message, it would go to EVCache, it would batch it up, and then it would send it cross-regionally over a secure channel. And then it would make it to the other side where there's a writer waiting, it would write it to EVCache, and the whole process would continue back to keep these two regions in sync. And most of the changes were happening in a region for a given customer and then replicating across. And this actually, it actually worked quite well. We put most of our recommendation data actually gets loaded into EV cache every day. So this was great to solve our uh, data situation for both Cassandra and EV cache. And now we had two regions running in a very healthy manner. 
So now we had to think about that traffic management component. Before we did G DNS geo-routing to get people to their, their islands in the various buckets, but now we needed to figure out how we're actually going to move people in flight, and we also have to make sure device behaviors support that. So um, we used Ultra at the top. We used multiple DNS providers for the purposes of redundancy. And we use Ultra for our uh, geo-routing. Um, and so what we would do is we would define where all the users, based on their uh, DNS geo, you know, IP location, should route to in terms of our, our primary uh, URL, example being API Global for, for Netflix. And then what we do is we would handpick. And one of the reasons we would handpick is we had to have rules to support failover. But at the same time, if we're just running a service in Oregon and Virginia, we can't just let the service decide how it wants to distribute traffic because a majority of users will go to Virginia based on latency. So we actually tease apart things to try to get a more even distribution, and this is for failover needs. Um, so we'll actually map some states to talk to a region that's not necessarily the preferred one based on just latency. And I'm not talking about big latency differences, but when you're very precise, you get an uneven balance. Um, and so we manage our DNS that way. Uh, when we have to do a failover in our current model, remember we couldn't support a failure over to Dublin. So what we did is we would just actually repoint the record over to the ELBs running in US West 2. And that's really great, right? Because now your device, and we, we maintain relatively low TTLs. We don't want someone sitting there for 30 minutes when their device can't find our, our service. And this allows us to steer traffic dynamically uh, between the regions. And then when it's done, we route it back. Pretty straightforward. So the first failover model we put in place and exercised wasn't the full global failover. It was the failover between US East 1 and US West 2. So now it's movie time, um, if it works. So this is, a, this is another visualization um, from that tool Visceral my team developed. And this represents all of the traffic of Netflix at a given point in time. The circle in the center represents traffic on the internet coming into Netflix. The three circles around the side represent US West 2, US East 1, and EU West 1. And so you can see the relative rates at which requests are coming in into the various regions. This tool was built. Um, the domain's called Intuition Engineering, but the traffic team built it because it gives us real-time visibility into what's happening at a global level. Um, and trying to visualize this data in some other manner was quite challenging, so we built a tool. So the, uh, the large lines where traffic is flowing is the, the everyday DNS routing, right? You're sitting in California, you go to Oregon with your device, and it's routing. You can see some errors creeping up there. So in this scenario, we're starting to have problems over in US West 2. The traffic along the backside is Zool. Zool can actually route requests cross-regionally, and the reason we do that is if we did a DNS flip out of the blue. Does anybody know what happened if we did a DNS flip right away? We'd, we'd crush, the other, crush the other region, right? Because we haven't fully scaled up. It might be we're at peak for US West 2, and US East 1 has enough capacity auto-scaled. So we start scaling up the other region through our utility called Flow. It's, it's a microservice as well. And when we actually reach, um, once the region is fully scaled up, then we do the DNS flip. Not, well, we're about 30% within the final point in time. And you can see the traffic from the center going up to US West 2 is dropping off, and most of that is devices whose TTL hasn't picked up the DNS change yet. So at this point, we've actually fully evacuated uh, Oregon, and we can go repair whatever happened there, maybe replace the service. One of the things that's really nice about having a failover model like this is if you have a problem, you don't have to stay up throughout the night to solve it. It's not uncommon for us to have a failure. We evacuate a region, and we're like, okay, see you in the office tomorrow, go home, right? Because you don't have to solve it right then. As long as you verify it's not going to be a problem that pushes to other regions, which we can verify fairly quickly. So it gives us the flexibility to uh, solve the problem on our own time. So that's the first example of failover. So at this point in time, we made a decision as a company that we're in a pretty good state to go global. We feel like we're great in the device space. We're great in the language and localization space. And our architecture, even though we have a little bit of a cloud island model there with Dublin off by itself, we feel like we're very comfortable stepping into it. So earlier this year, um, at CES, I believe that's here in Las Vegas, uh, Reed Hastings was up on stage, and he announced Netflix everywhere. And that means that we're just going to turn on Netflix for the rest of the globe. No more white gloving, you know, going into a given region and handpicking it. And as a result, we opened it up for just about everywhere in the world. There's a handful of countries. China, you'll notice, is, is gray right now. Um, that's one that it's not my responsibility to figure out how to work out the dynamics there, but there's teams that are engaging with that from, I hear, a number of companies. 
Um, and there's other places we don't stream to based on uh, government restrictions. But we did it. We opened it up globally. And you can even get it on planes, right? If you fly some of the Virgin America planes, you can watch Netflix on there. So again, we're trying to extend it. Maybe it'll be up on the space station soon. I don't, I don't know. Um, or Mars. Uh, so before language, the languages before were relatively easy for us to implement, right, in terms of how they were handled by the systems. When we added in addi additional languages that were a gate for us to get to global, we suddenly had to deal with different character sets that were not normally handled on our devices very well. Um, we had different layouts. And so we had to invest a lot of time in getting that final, you know, that last mile of having the appropriate language support. Here's an example. We actually did a lot of focus groups on how we structure our uh, search for some of the Asian markets. Um, and we had to figure out how to flip between the right languages, how search would be handled. An early prototype was actually fully rejected. Um, so we, we replaced it before we launched, which was great. The UI also had some things we had to work on. We had to figure out how to lay out text differently, whether it was for subtitles or for just titling in general. Things, instead of being from left to right, might be right to left, might be up to down. So the device teams had their handful. It took us about a year to really get over this hurdle from an engineering perspective um, to implement all these capabilities across the devices. So now we felt like, okay, we've got this device thing handled. What would be really great is to have content ubiquity, right? We, we, that, that, fantasy of being able to play the same content everywhere at the same time. So earlier in the year, we launched Daredevil Season 2. Uh, it was a good first season hit for us, had great traction second season as well. One thing that was really fantastic about this is we, we always release in most, well, I think we all the time, all episodes on all devices at the same time. In this case, we did all countries, and we did it simultaneously. Um, if you've ever watched the press launches, we actually don't have a big lever in our room, but uh, it's good for press to see a big switch going. But um, this was really fantastic for us to realize we're at that point where we could have content we could play regardless of the market. Um, and it, uh, just, I think it really laid the path for how we need to go forward on content management. So now we have all these in place, we're ready to go. What we need to do is close the gap around the global failover model. We really don't want everybody in Europe, which is a big population for us and growing, to suddenly be isolated as their own basket of eggs. So our goal was to, um, we want to serve any customer from any region. This has data problems. This has cost implications, right? So we have the three regions. We determined we don't need more regions. We're not going to put up a region, you know, in Singapore. We actually measured latencies and determined that for most of our users, because our CDN experience is decoupled, could achieve acceptable performance with the three regions we are in. And at our scale, going into three, a region um, is actually a fairly expensive uh, move, right? I talked about how many instances we have. So if I were to lose US East 1 and I had to evacuate it, we have a multi-step failover model, and we purchase capacity in that sense. I, we don't you know, flush out our capacity such that, um, I got some capacity people are in the front row, so I'm smiling. We spent a lot of time on this. Uh, we don't buy enough capacity that any region could support any other region failing in its entirety. So what we do is we do multi-stage failovers and scale up and down appropriately. So if we were to evacuate Virginia, we would send probably about 80% of the traffic over to Dublin, and concurrently we would send about 20% of the traffic over to US West 2. And that's handled automatically by our flow service. One thing I didn't point out is we run this exercise every month, every month of the year, and we run it for 24 hours. So my traffic team actually fails out of a region. We run outside of that region for 24 hours, and then we fail it back. And the nice thing is we always find things, uh, but we're now to a point where we don't even tell the engineering organization we're going to do it. Some people usually find out because they're doing a push or something, but. Uh, it's like, hey, where did US East go? Uh, it's, it's a big, big excitement. So that's, that's how we evacuate Virginia. Uh, if we happen to lose Dublin, we bring the traffic from Europe over into Virginia, and we concurrently push traffic from Virginia over to US West 2, um, a certain portion. Some of the time zone offset also gives us some flexibility with these regions. And then the final one is if we lose PDX, what we do is we take a large portion of US East 1, move it to Dublin, and then we bring US West 2 over at the same time. And this allows us great flexibility around capacity management. Um, today, this process takes us about uh, 40 minutes, and it's mostly a function of how long it takes to scale up that other region to support a big, a big burst. So now we have a different data problem. We have a region that's pre-existing, and we have to fill it with data. So for EV cache, one thing we found is 
Our previous model was working pretty well, but our data pipeline team had adopted Kafka as a messaging technology. It actually worked out really great to also become our EB cache replication technology. Um, has very low latency. Um, we were getting over a million replications a second cross region. We also have it as our core data platform this last year. So when you think about we have these pre-existing Cassandra rings, um, it's a different data problem. EV cache is relatively quick to refresh, right? The data is shorter lived. We can, we can fill it fairly quickly. The Cassandra data, not so much. And we can't just take two rings and stick them together. These were isolated. So what we would do is we would stand up a new ring over in Dublin. We would basically extend the US, one of the US rings into Dublin. And then what we would do is we would start doing dual writing. So changes happening to the old cluster would be happening to the, the, uh, the new cluster. And the goal was um, to do this for as short a time as possible. Uh, and we also did current, concurrent forklifting in the background and compares. But once we were able to do that, we were able to get the EU data. So it can be done. We got the EU data into the same ring. And now we have our global uh, Cassandra clusters that are running. And if we go to a new region, it will be a little bit easier because we'll just extend and grow the ring. Um, but when you have a pre-existing one, don't feel like it's a decision you have to make today if the engineering investment isn't there. So then the traffic management is, is always interesting. We actually have different DNS zones. Um, we send uh, different geo-routing for Latin America, um, not including Mexico. So we, we split it out differently, sort of handpicking who goes to what region. Um, and so here's another movie for you. And this uh, shows the failover that's a multi-stage failover. So remember, same pra practice applies, internet in the middle, in the three regions. So again, the traffic's flowing between the, reg the regions. You can see the little red dots are actually errors. At some level, we, have, we always have you know, some amount of errors, right? A device might have a mismatched key. There might be a network problem. But um, as the errors start to go up in a given region, at this point, we're going to evacuate, in this example, Virginia. Right. So the first thing we do is we start um, routing traffic to the other two regions using Zool. And that's because the capacity is not fully scaled up. And this is all done automatically behind the scenes. So you can see, as I mentioned before, when US East 1 needs to be evacuated, we send the majority of its traffic to EU West 1, where we have a lot of spare capacity we've purchased for that, um, for that specific reason. Um, and then as those regions are scaled up and they're ready to support the traffic, uh, we then do the DNS flip and we say, stop talking to Virginia. Uh, and that's very well controlled. And there it goes. So at that point, we're no longer talking to the US East 1 region. And then to restore the steady state's a little bit tricky. We actually re-enable 100% of the traffic back to the region we evacuated, but we keep the proxying in place. And then we turn down the dial on proxying. So we're verifying that the edge tier that's handling the rerouting is appropriately scaled. That has to be at scale. Um, and then as the other region, in this case, US East 1, gets back to its required capacity, then we stop routing traffic uh, across Isthmus. And there you go. And now we're back to steady state. Um, it's truly one of our, our best reliability strategies. Um, this is an example. The top graph represents uh, people playing, clicking start on a title over three days. The bottom graph represents the three regions over the same time period. It's laid out a little bit funky. But you can see we evacuated US East 1, and we sent the traffic to EU West and US East 1. And what I like to see is at that top graph, you see almost no impact to global streaming, right? It should be very transparent. Um, I've actually done it before. Right? I know we're doing a failover. I'll start playing something on devices just to verify, but very smooth. So at this point, when I talk about that ubiquitous, resilient architecture, we now have the feather on our hat, right? We went global. We have this architecture. We can fail out of a region in. Um, uh, you know, 40 minutes, and this was us celebrating. Um, our engineering staff is located in Los Gatos. We're all in one location. Um, and we took, we took a big break to celebrate this win. So Reed Hastings said that going global was like having a baby. And I, I thought at first, I'm like, I don't quite, I don't know what that means. So I went and searched it up. And, um, you know, it's a big step. You think about all the things we did from a device content uh, architecture perspective to get here. That's just the beginning, right? We now have 20 years. If anybody's raised kids, I'm sort of midway between that, um, moving into the less pleasant years. But um, the next 20 years are going to be very interesting for us uh, in terms of how we continue to go after the world. There's still some challenges we need to take into account. So what's next? Are we done? You know, like I'm just going to leave here and go home and retire because all the architectural problems have been solved. Um, we're going to start routing traffic more intelligently. Now that we have this infrastructure better controlled over DNS routing, we're going to start sending people to different regions. And that might allow us to balance our capacity 
in a different manner. Uh, we're adding more brains onto our monitoring, right? We have uh, a large open source monitoring tool called Atlas. And Atlas handles about three billion metrics a minute um, on the cloud for us and has very good response time. Um, it's actually too much data to look at, right? Um, and our, our core team, my core SRE team, has no monitors on our walls, right? We're an alert, we're an alert-driven model. No one's watching any dashboards because there's just too much data. And so if we have an outage, it's just a signal that we don't have good alerts. Given the tens and tens of thousands of even core alerts once you go global, we're actually building some solutions to analyze it and appropriate classifiers. Fast failover. So today it takes us that 40 minutes to failover. That's not really ideal. Um, and it, it really can't help us you know, get out of the way of a Twitter storm. Like if, some, if a region is tanked and I have to wait 40 minutes, I just turn off my Twitter feed. I'm like, I'm not watching that. Um, but what we're doing is we're gonna move to fast failover and we're exercising this capability right now and we're actually gonna have the ability to evacuate a region in about five to six minutes and we're gonna put that in place Q1. And the way we do that without significantly over-provisioning all the time is we attach capacity behind the scenes that's running in shadow mode with our auto-scaling traffic and when we need to fail over, we just wire it in. So we are allocating more capacity 24 by seven, but we're still freeing up a large amount of unused capacity for other activities um, like encoding or recommendations pre-compute. And you can watch some of our presentations on using our internal, um, we call it an internal spot market, but it's our spare capacity market that people use. So fast failover is gonna be awesome. Um, we still need to get some better utilization out of our service. You'll find when you go to a microservice architecture, if your goal is to over-optimize on utilization, you're probably going to be fairly sad and you will end up compromising reliability because you will tr probably under-provision services that need to have headroom. So we're gonna figure out ways to have better utilization and this involves, as we get on bigger and bigger EC2 instances, finding ways at the system level to profile that and uh, really squeeze more, more use out of that hardware. Brendan Gregg is on my perf team, spends a lot of time figuring out how we can get better utilization out of the systems. Uh, integrating DB and caching, there's a tech blog article from the EV cache team on um, how we've extended EV cache to have a proxy that supports SSD. It's called Moneda. I don't know if it's open source yet or not. It might be. But um, with some technologies coming down the road, and new, uh, when you think about the things um, Intel's announced around Apache Pass, some of this sort of you know, SSD in your DRAM slot type stuff, having that line of performance between Cassandra and EV Cache be as disparate as right now will probably close a bit. And so we're building some solutions to help us in that manner. I think we've already saved many millions of dollars just by using this new technology to consolidate down some um, EV Cache clusters based on their access patterns. And automated chaos. So my chaos team has a framework called CHAP. Chaos Automation Platform. We're rolling it out right now. We're gonna make it automated. But what it does is it takes a percentage of user traffic every day and it sends it through the flow and it exercises various failures and fallbacks. Um, it doesn't keep you black holed. So if we're exercising chaos in your account, you're not gonna be able to you know, not watch Netflix. We'll do it for a couple of requests and then you reroute somewhere else. But we'd like that, as with Chaos Monkey, to be ubiquitous in our engineering organization. So if I had to summarize it all, um, learn how to use PowerPoint. Um, so you can have big outages, right? And they're gonna happen. If you wanna try to you know, find a company where there's never gonna be an outage, you're probably not gonna change your code ever. Um, but the goal is not to fail the same way twice. So when you look at our model, we had some really big outages historically. It might look like we're still having some pretty nasty outages based on time. But an important thing to understand is that our population of users has grown like you know sevenfold in that time. So not only are we rapidly increasing our scale, we're supporting this ubiquitous data replication, large-scale failover, we're actually reducing the duration of incidents. Um, and that's, that's exactly what we wanted to do with our architecture. And people are very diligent about it at work. Based on what your current deployment model looks like, you can look at what your resiliency patterns are, right? If you're in a data center, and you don't have multiple data centers, you have to do this undifferentiated, you, know, you have to do this heavy lifting um, that you might not be great at. Uh, if you're in one region, um, even though you get these multiple availability zones, it's still one control plane. If you have a problem with your code across that region, you're sort of stuck. That's the, the eggs in the basket. Islands, same thing. At least you have regional containment. You know, in our case, some people can stream, some can't, but it's better than no one can stream. Um, and Isthmus, I didn't talk about that earlier,
But that really deals with um, allowing yourself to do failover more quickly by having a proxy tier that sits in front of your services. That's very thin, very resilient. Um, but if your services have a problem and you can't scale up quickly in the other region, you can start bleeding that traffic over. And then active-active. You got everything you need right there. And global. Um, we do focus on these dimensions. Efficiency is one that the capacity planning team and I spend a fair amount of time, but we try to stay out of the way of engineers. So when you think about the dimensions of innovation, reliability, security, and efficiency, I think of reliability and security as very close together. Innovation is, we always try to put that at the top, and efficiency is something where we find ways to help people be more efficient without incurring a lot of drag on them. Uh, and actually, you know, if you see my previous presentations from other years or other presentations from conferences, we allow people to deploy however much hardware they want, whenever they want, with no requisition process, right? You go to Spinnaker, our new awesome CD tool that Andy's talking about here, you just type in 1,000, you get 1,000, right? It isn't like you have to run it through your department. Sometimes we'll, we'll get woken up and have some pages because uh, people might ask for too much, but um, then we just work with them on this side. So that's it. You know, think about your architectural pillars. If you want to move to the cloud and you aren't there already or you have some drag still in the data center and you want to get out, figure about, use it as an opportunity to change your architecture. If we had just forklifted our architecture to the cloud, we wouldn't have gotten away with much, right? We'd have a gigantic Oracle database, one big Java web app, and we'd have to pull all this away. So we took baby steps and invested in that. So if you're thinking globally, instead of just acting locally, you know, on the cloud, you can, you can act globally as well. Think about what it means maybe 12 months from now. What if you want to move out of this region and go to that region and talk to your key architecture teams and figure out how to incorporate that into your plans? You don't want to block yourself out of doing that. Some plugs here at the end. Netflix has a big open source offering. Um, we have data persistence. If you go to our website, it was revamped this last year. Andrew Spiker is here talking about our container usage. Um, really helped overhaul this and make it first class. If, you're, if you want to see some of these technologies we've put in place, like whether it's, you know, Zool, uh, Visceral, some of the platform components, we make it available there for you to download in terms of libraries. Tech blog's always good to follow if you're interested in seeing what we're up to lately. We tend to be very open about all of the things we create um, and we'd like to share with the world. Chaos Monkey, remember, don't forget to pick up your sticker. Uh, and it's open source, so feel free to grab it as well. And that is it. Um, we have about... Seven minutes for questions, and there are microphones somewhere that I cannot see if anybody has any questions.